This all started in museums and galleries. Now it's in classrooms, in country towns. This should not be here. It's a human being in a box. This is the stuff of empires. There is a great betrayal. We're not slaves, we're African. It's the stuff the British stole. I just don't believe that. It just does not stand up. From ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts, six brand new podcast episodes for free worldwide, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. To say you're lonely almost feels like saying you're not likable or even worse, that you're not lovable. And I know this because that's how I felt as a child when I struggled with loneliness over the years. That's the United States' top doctor, the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy. He is the co-chair of a new committee set up by the World Health Organization to tackle loneliness, something the WHO now calls a global public health concern. I want to raise the alarm that this is a public health issue and one that we're actually not talking about because there's a lot of shame that people associate with loneliness. That sense of loneliness is a Canadian public health issue as well, and it's one that Dr. Jacques Lee studies. He is the inaugural research chair in geriatric emergency medicine at the Schwartz-Riesman Emergency Medicine Institute at Mount Sinai Hospital. He's with me in our studio in Toronto. Good morning. Good morning. This issue of loneliness is something that we've been talking about for a long time, but it feels as though people are speaking about it in a different way right now. When did you realize and recognize the issue of loneliness in the patients that you were seeing in the emergency department? Yeah, so um, I'm a delirium researcher. Remember back uh, in April 2020, we were in the middle of COVID, how afraid we were. And uh, I had a patient who came in, he'd been in a nursing home. He'd actually got COVID early on and survived. He was doing fine. But the staff were so terrified of the disease and I understand why. Mm -hmm. He was basically locked in his room. Um, They slid the food through the door. He had no human contact. And he called an ambulance. And I was talking to him and I was not entirely sure, why are you here? Because he was in pretty good physical health. He'd... His COVID had fully recovered, you know, and he was dying of loneliness. Mm. He was just so desperately lonely. He begged me not to send him back to the nursing home. And that's when I kind of went, that's something new. That's not something I've paid attention to in the past. I was going to say something that you paid attention to. How well does the medical establishment in this country do at recognizing loneliness and recognizing it for what it is? Uh, I think, you know, let's say the data on smoking came out like you know, a couple of years ago and people hadn't really got the message, that's where we're at. It's like, we didn't really appreciate that it has such significant impacts on health um, and it's been completely untreated and unaddressed, right? So it's probably the largest social determinant of health that we've got no treatment for. The largest social determinant of health that we have no treatment for. No treatment for. The, uh, The estimates, and this is based on really good uh, meta-analyses uh, supported by animal models, uh, you know, just all the checklists that does this cause that shows that it's as large of a risk factor for your health as smoking, more than obesity, more than obesity. And we don't measure it. We don't uh, do anything about it. Um, and it's 
affecting a third of Canadians right I'll talk now. more about that, but how much of that has to do with the stigma that we heard the Surgeon General talking about? This idea that, that people don't talk about loneliness in some ways because they're worried about how it reflects back on them. Yeah, we know that um, people experiencing loneliness are very reluctant to talk about it. Um, studies of loneliness often have difficulty finding people because you know, nobody, nobody defines himself as being lonely, right? And uh, as we heard in the beginning, there's lots of good reasons for that, you know. I think in the medical profession, it's more, uh, more along the lines that uh, that's not my job, that's not really, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's not relevant, it's mm -hmm. not a priority. You know, and I think we're beginning to understand that it should be a priority. It must be a priority. So let me bring another guest into this conversation to talk further about some of the things that you've teed up. Dr. Jeremy Nobel is a primary care physician, lecturer in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School, also the author of a new book, Project Unlonely, Healing a Crisis of Disconnection. He is in Boston, Massachusetts. Doctor, good morning to you. It's a pleasure to be here. How do you define loneliness? So it's important to know um, that being lonely is not the same as being alone. Being lonely is the sense that we're missing something. We, there are social connections that we aspire to that we don't have. So as Dr. Lee mentioned, this can be a very, very uh, difficult emotional experience. Being alone is an objective state that you don't have social contacts. Now, being alone can lead to loneliness. So it's important to understand that isolation can be toxic also, but it's not the same. So it's important that we have a little bit of loneliness literacy as we turn to face this major crisis. You said something interesting and in that, that this is in some ways about the gap between the social connections that we aspire to and the ones that we have. Exactly right. So it's totally subjective. It's how we feel. There are some people who are relatively okay with a small number of social contacts. And so in primary care or any other kind of care setting, as Dr. Lee mentioned, we don't typically ask our patients if they're lonely. And part of that is because we haven't been trained as clinicians to be sensitive to the very dire health consequence of significant loneliness. And so it kind of goes to the side. I think what the pandemic did is it shined a spotlight actually on research that had been around for decades about how toxic loneliness can be. And now we're struggling to make sense of it and to highlight it as something as important to health as many of the other things we focus on. What are the very dire health consequences of loneliness? Well, let's start with the mental health side because I think that's what people expect. Okay, loneliness is probably the biggest preventable risk factor for a classic triad of mental health concerns, depression, addiction, and suicidality. But even 15 years ago, there was growing evidence that loneliness won't just make you miserable, it'll kill you. It'll increase and does increase risk of dying early, premature death by 30%. As Dr. Lee mentioned, that's on par with smoking 15 cigarettes a day and far greater than the risk, not just of obesity, but sedentary lifestyle, um, excessive drinking, uh, and, and other considerations we take very seriously. So loneliness at its chronic high levels mm. increases risk of heart attack or stroke or death from either by 30%, risk of dementia by 40%, type 2 diabetes 50%. So bottom line, we need to take it very seriously as a, as a medical issue. Dr. Lee, do you want to pick up on that in terms of what we're going through here in Canada? I mean, you said at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about that patient who you characterized as dying of loneliness. 
Yeah. So the intensity of loneliness um, is also not a yes, no thing, right? Um, so this gentleman is feeling severe loneliness, you know? And uh, yeah, that's another part of the spectrum. There's like a, what we call a dose response curve. The more lonely you are, the worse it is for you. Uh, and to, to pick up on that point, you know, about the difference between isolation and loneliness. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, if you're a monk and you choose a life of isolation, you can be perfectly content. You can be perfectly content with one really close friend. You don't need right? to be a monk. You could be an introvert. Yeah, yeah, somebody who just exactly. likes, you know, their own company to yeah, hang like out in two words or something. Canadians, yeah. Yeah. Uh, or you could be surrounded by a lot of superficial f- friends and uh, not feel connected. And I think, um, I don't focus on younger people, but I think that's a lot of what's happening in our, our younger population. The age thing is interesting, Dr. Nobel, because it's not just, the assumption is that this is an affliction of the elderly. Why is it that people in general, people broadly, why is it that, that they get lonely? Well, the other um, important observation I've made over studying this now almost 20 years, and I do put it in my book, thank you uh, for mentioning that, is there are different types of loneliness. So there are three types that I think are useful, and I'll, I'll just go through them very quickly. I think that'll be interesting to the readers. First, there's psychological loneliness. Is there someone I can confide in, tell my troubles to? Does someone have my back? But then there's societal loneliness. Am I systematically excluded because of my race, my gender, because I have a disability, some external characteristic? And then there's a kind of existential or spiritual kind of loneliness where you wonder if your life has meaning, purpose, does your life have consequence? Now, you can have different types of, you can experience all all or none of these types of loneliness. The reason it's important, because from a public health intervention perspective, if you have psychological loneliness and you need someone to confide in, you would approach that in a different way than if you feel your life has that lacks meaning and purpose or that you're being systematically excluded because of something like race. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. What was your own experience with loneliness? I ask you this in part, you've, you've spoken about this and you wrote about it. Yes. Well, I had some personal experience. I lost my father at a young age. Uh, I actually came downstairs one morning. I was 15. He was, I didn't know it at the time, but he was dying of a heart attack in the living room of our house. Mm-hmm. Um, he was white as a sheet. He had what's called cardiogenic shock. I'd never seen that. He he was conscious. He asked me to, you know, um, get my mother to call the doctor. Emergency support came. But I felt like somehow I had let him down. It was an emotional um, sense of guilt and shame that he died on my watch. Now, this is totally not a rational reaction. It's often how kids react if they think their parents are divorcing because of them. It's just an unconscious feeling. But it stuck with me that somehow I was unworthy or I was flawed and I let my father down. And that, although I wasn't fully conscious of it, that shaped my self-esteem. It shaped my willingness and eagerness to get involved and connect in emotional ways. And I think that kind of trauma, although that was very personal for me, is 
unfortunately very common in our society that people have traumatic experiences that make them feel that they may be flawed, as Dr. Murthy said, and not merit the social connection with others. How did you deal with the stigma that's associated with that? That's what we heard at the very beginning from, from the Surgeon General. Yeah, I think the stigma around loneliness is even greater than the stigma stigma now around mental health disorders. Mm. It's kind of where depression was 20, 25 years ago, where people wouldn't even say the word out loud. I think we have a little window of opportunity to talk about loneliness in part because of the pandemic. Many of us were lonely during the pandemic, including me, because we were isolating in response to a common threat, not because we were flawed or unattractive or excluded. We were actually doing the right thing in coordination with lots of other people. And so, yes, we were lonely, but we didn't feel embarrassed, ashamed, or guilty about that loneliness. So we were able to talk about it. And I think that tolerance to talk about loneliness has been a kind of a little bit of a a, a beacon of light (laughs) that we can build on and recognize that loneliness may be the most human of feelings that you want to have connection to other people and a signal Just like thirst is a signal you need hydration, loneliness is a signal you need human cognition or human connection. Mm. Why is it we're guilty and ashamed about being lonely where we don't feel that way about being thirsty? And bottom line, because it's a social and cultural narrative, it's a story about loneliness, and we can change that. And that's why it's so important that we have these coordinated awareness campaigns and medical and public health response. Dr. Lee, you did a research trial during the pandemic looking at loneliness, particularly in older people. What did you find? So we've, uh, my awesome team has screened over 4,000 people who left the emergency department and talked to over 1,200 of them. And we found that 36% of older people uh, leaving the emergency department had uh, loneliness and 60% had gotten worse uh, due to COVID. What do you do with that once you learn that? Right. So we uh, are in the middle or at the very end of a randomized clinical trial where about uh, we're using an Australian intervention where we have a, uh, my colleague Judy Lothian in Australia developed a hospital volunteer-based intervention where hospital volunteers call older people who are lonely and talk to them for half an hour um, once a week, like a chat over the fence. And the purpose is not to, be, to become the friend, it's to help them make the moves, coach them to call the brother they haven't talked to in five years, you know, to, to identify goals and try and improve their situation, right? Like help them realize that it, it's something that can be improved and uh, something that will benefit them. That's an empowering kind of thing. Rather than, as you said, trying to create a friend, you're encouraging them to reach out. Yeah. The, uh, the um, you know, we're, I, I, I'm, I'm always thinking about scale, right? If this intervention works, 90% of Canadian hospitals have volunteers. So it could be uh, relatively inexpensively added to other hospitals, you know? Um, so, so that's really important. But, you, but there's a distinction between the two. Part of it is getting in contact with somebody else, but the other part, and it's not to say that it's, it's their fault that they're, at, that they're at, at the root of this, but that if they reach out, they will have more contacts. They will perhaps feel more connected and, and not feel as lonely. 100%, you know, and, and to, you know, to think about what are the things that I used to enjoy doing, you know, why am I not doing it? You know, how can we address those barriers, you know, and really just, 
you know, when you're, you're in that state, um, it can help to have somebody uh, give you a little nudge. Dr. Nobel, what about young people? We've been talking a lot about older folks, but one of the things that the Surgeon General pointed out is that social media is causing a mental health crisis among youth. And you mentioned the idea of, of superficial friends and, and, you know, who really has your back. What do we know about loneliness among young people? Well, some very good studies were done 2018, 2019 that indicated and this shocked people that the loneliest adult demographic is not older adults, it's 18 to 24. And so the question is, why is this true? And I think you talk about social media, that may be the single biggest driver for that. What, what, what is going on specifically with social media? I mean, it is, you know, it becomes a, a thing that you can blame for any number of ails in society, but what specifically is going on here? Yeah, well, this is very specific, and the way young people often use social media is in a very kind of performative and comparative way. You know, you kind of externalize certain aspects or characteristics about yourself, hoping to get attention, likes, follows, and so on, grow your fan base, personal fan base, if you will. So you can have 6,000 followers on Instagram, but who's coming to bring you lunch tomorrow if you're sick? And so there's a growing gap between this kind of digital sense of connection and the authentic human connections that, as we've been talking about, we all need. And so this is a growing driver for um, sadness, hopelessness. Uh, recent CDC data in the U.S. said 60% of teenage girls are persistently sad and hopeless, twice what it was 10 years ago. So the impl you can't prove that association with social media, but it's certainly um, is suspect. Dr. Lee, are you drawing those lines as well? <laughs> I mean, you're focused in many ways on, on, on geriatric health, but you, you did, you did raise the issue of social media. You did raise the issue of, of, yeah. of what's happening broadly. In yeah. Society. I wanted to, and that's like, as a parent, <laughs> that's like, as a parent of, uh, to, to, uh, young people and, you know, looking at the lives and, and how different it was when, from when we were growing up, right. Mm. The, uh, and, um, uh, combined with what we saw during COVID, right? You know, the, the, how detached, uh, some kids were getting, yeah. Um, uh, not my area of study, but I've seen it in my house. What do we do about this then broadly? If, if now is the moment that people are talking about this from, you know, high levels on right on down, what do we do about trying to address this, Dr. Lee? Well, there's a ton of people. There's a, my colleagues who are in healthcare out there right now who are listening to this interview, right? You know, and it's like, hey, this is a new vital sign, right? Like a new, sorry, a new vital a sign. A new vital sign. Have you checked in about how the person's connected socially, right? And we know this in geriatrics, you know, we, we call it the five M's, what matters most to people, you know? So uh, something we've never actually checked, we check blood pressure, we check weight, we check your sugar level. It's like, how are you doing? How connected are you, right? And I think that's starting to happen and that's going to happen. And same with uh, uh, patients, uh, you know, just like do a little self-assessment, talk to your doctor about it, right? You know, because if you're struggling with your health, we know that loneliness is really uh, magnified by people who've got health problems already, right? Because the health problems slow you down, your knees, you can't get out, um, which leads to more isolation, which means leads to depression, which leads to, you know, it's just a, it's just a snowball. Mm. So I think, I think this is fantastic. People are going to start talking about it. Um, and thanks to Dr. Noble for really laying the groundwork that it, it's not a shameful thing, right? People aren't ashamed of, um, you know, having low insulin levels, right? That's what, diabetes is right you know but we're 
ashamed of not having enough people in our lives. And that's, that's something I hope that this communication changes. Dr. Nobel, just last word to you in the last minute or so that we have. If people are listening to this and they think, this sounds like me, what would you say to them? I think, first of all, if, if you feel you're lonely, the most important thing to know is you're not alone in that. Also, that it's not your fault. And I think it's terrific what Dr. Lee's describing about the healthcare systems becoming more sensitive and responsive. But loneliness really has to become a community-wide effort. We have to welcome the opportunity to share authentic stories with each other in the community and build supportive programs. So when people say, I'm lonely, I need help, in the medical system, this is called social prescribing, you can then direct them to community-based opportunities in faith-based groups, libraries, schools, where they can have the authentic interaction with other people that, that truly connects them. That goes back to that idea that Dr. Lee mentioned, the social determinants of health. I mean, it, it, it happens well beyond the emergency department, well beyond the hospital, well beyond the doctor's office. Absolutely. Day to day, you know, 80, 90 percent of our health are our behaviors, our habits, our attitudes. I'm sure Dr. Lee would agree. How do we give people the opportunity to be connected in a culture of connection that we build as we acknowledge the urgency of addressing it as a public health crisis? I'm really glad to talk to you both about this. Thank you very much. Thanks. My pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Jacques Lee is the inaugural research chair in geriatric emergency medicine at the Schwartz-Riesman Emergency Medicine Institute. He was with me in our studio in Toronto. Dr. Jeremy Nobel is a primary care physician and lecturer at Harvard Medical School and the author of a new book called Project Unlonely, Healing Our Crisis of Disconnection. How might we go about healing that crisis of disconnection? Your advice and thoughts on the loneliness crisis would be welcome. You can email us, The Current at cbc.ca. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.